Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller, and I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. It's been a while. You and I have been on the road once again. That's right. <laughs> as we tend to do. You were traveling. Yeah. You were tra- You were yeah. in California. Yep. South Carolina, Chicago. Doing private workshops yep. for companies? Dallas, Texas, three different times. Yeah. Get to spend two days with companies where I go in, and they bring their whole team. We can get everybody kind of working through their yeah. story, their messaging, get everybody on the same page. It's a blast. It's That's a awesome. lot of fun. And then they yeah. take what they learn, and they redo all their websites mm-hmm. and all that Website, kind of stuff. Website, email, everything. It's a lot of fun. Well, it's really cool. I was on vacation. <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> I saw your pictures in Palm Springs. I was very aware I that you were on vacation. I sat by a pool for nine days. <laughs> oh, so And fun. it was hard. I remember one time... <laughs> I wanted more ice water, and uh-huh. uh, I mean the pool people just uh, weren't coming around. Well, wow! I, <laughs> I need, need to a clarify for that message. That's for sure. this company on my back. <laughs> <laughs> we got a great interview today with Ashley Vance. Yeah. Ashley is the speaking of being busy. <laughs> <laughs> He's the biographer of Elon Musk. Yeah, and it's pretty fascinating. And the thing that you'll pick up during the interview about Elon. He just knows how to get things done. Yeah. Oh, well, he's a billionaire. No, no, no. Yeah. If, if, you, if, if you were a billionaire, you wouldn't be launching a space program, creating electric cars, yeah. trying to get batteries in every house so that houses can basically go off the yeah. grid for hours every day. Who's somebody that you know who like is just otherworldly in terms of like getting things done? I have a friend who I used to work with in San Diego who um, runs an organization that builds homes in Mexico. And this guy... Scott Congdon is his name. Scott Congdon is the president of More Ministries, and he gets so much done. He is very scheduled. He does a radio show in South Africa that he records every day. Yeah, he <laughs> records it in San Diego because he doesn't can't go over there every day. So he's a radio personality in South Africa. He takes groups of people down to Mexico, down to South Africa, to Australia to build homes. So he's kind of constantly always traveling all around the world. Yeah. And even in the midst of that, every time he comes back with a story of like, oh yeah, I met the ambassador from Australia. Australia to the United States, and we're friends now, and we're actually starting this new program. We're going to work with teenagers who are in the outback. And he's just like, <laughs> he's always got something going on. He's working on new sanitation systems and water purification. He's unreal. All the time, he kind of blows me away of everything he gets done. Yeah. Bob is like that. You know Bob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob Goff is like that for me. I've been friends with Bob for a long time, and probably like year two, I had to just stop comparing myself. <laughs> yeah, say, you do. You know, it's not healthy. No. But I learned a lot. I mean, Tons. I learned a lot from yeah. Bob, I learned like you can do anything. Yeah. And there's nothing really stopping you from doing things. I mean, yeah. I, there was a point where I was, you know, realized Bob was just wired differently. It was when I heard, I can't, I don't think he told me, but somebody, somebody said, there's a piece of paper on Museveni's desk, the president of Uganda, that if he signs it, because Ugandan parliament has apparently approved this. Mm-hmm. And the piece of paper would make Bob Goff a Supreme Court justice in Uganda as a non-Ugandan citizen. (laughs) He's an American white guy. I mean, this is like constitutional law. This is like if you you make a crooked skyscraper, (laughs) Bob's the guy you go see. So I guess if you want to fix a government. Uh, What I love about this interview is just Elon is 
clearly like kind of a quirky, unique individual, yeah. right? Like he's so driven and so amazing. I feel like I've learned over the years in my kind of leadership style that I can learn from people like this. I don't have to be them. Yeah. Like that's a big thing. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. if I, yeah, if, I mean, it's no good. You're going to, you got to be yourself yeah, and live into that. Fully. I can't be Bob Goff. I can't be Scott Congdon. I can't be Elon Musk, but, but you I can, can be JJ. From, I try to every day. <laughs> One of the things, and you, you know, we talked about it earlier and, and you'll pick up on in the interview. I, I did learn some things from this yeah, interview. Yeah. And one is the importance of an insurgent mission yes. to motivate a team. And by insurgent mission, I mean, you're sort of against something. You're saving the world from something. You're, you know, there's a, we're going to change things. There's a disruption mindset yeah. that Elon truly has. And Ashley and I get into it a little bit where he explains maybe where it came from. Uh, you know, other than that, this is such an inspirational interview because he's such an inspirational guy. Yeah. I mean, he's just getting a lot of things done. And I, I walked away from this interview thinking, Maybe we can take over the world, you know, yeah. here at StoryBrand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this book is Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. Ashley was kind enough to give me some of his time. It's really a terrific book. It's winsomely written. I just loved it. Anyway, enough said. Here's my interview with Ashley Vance. Ashley, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, listen, you've written a tome here. This is hundreds and hundreds of pages about uh, a really interesting guy who got more interesting from the time I read your book to this conversation because I was just in L.A. and I read a story about Elon Musk being frustrated about the traffic from his office to LAX where he gets on his private plane, which apparently is not a very long drive. His office is somewhere near LAX. And so he has decided to dig a tunnel. And I thought this was got to be a joke. And then they showed up <laughs> his parking lot, and there's a giant hole in the parking lot where he has a boring machine, and he's trying to dig a tunnel from his office to LAX, which I don't even think is legal, nor does he know whether or not it's legal, but he's just going to do it until somebody stops him. This is the guy that you wrote a book about. Yeah, that sounds like his standard operating procedure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, before, I've got some specific questions, but, you know, I mean, everybody knows SpaceX. They know Tesla. You know, they know uh, the Hyperloop. They know some of the science fiction-y things, the things that he's really doing in the world. And I think he's genuinely making the world a better place. But can you just tell me a little bit about him, first impressions? I mean, what did you think after spending so much time with this guy? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, just like you're talking about with this tunnel thing, he's a one-of-a-kind sort of figure. Um, I would say the biggest picture thing, if you spend a lot of time with Elon, is just that he is, you know, I, I've spent 15 years covering Silicon Valley and interviewing all types of people like this, but but he is the most driven, intense individual I've ever met in my life and, and he's supremely logical, right? So when he looks at something like traffic or he thinks electric cars are a good idea or he thinks we should get to Mars, you know, I, I think a lot of us sort of have thoughts like this, you know, yeah. about things that need to be fixed in the world. And, you know, maybe we pick our spots, but, you know, he sits down, he says, this is a problem. And he says, I'm the guy, I'm going to go fix it. What is it about him? I interviewed uh, Pete Carroll once, uh, the Seahawks coach, and he struck me as I interviewed him as just not having that, you know, the checks and balances that operate in the average brain that says, well, you know, you can't do that, 
right? So, you know, with gang problems in Los Angeles as the head coach of the USC Trojans, he just decided in his spare time he's just going to solve gang violence. And he goes into the inner city and he starts operating with kids and all these kinds of things. He just didn't have that thing that says, wait, that's out of my territory or I can't do that or nobody's ever done that before. That really wasn't there. And it sounds like it's not there with Elon Musk either. Is there some point where in your interaction with him, you recognized this guy doesn't have that ceiling that most of us believe exists? Yeah, but I would say, you know, I don't know Pete well at all. Um, but I, you know, I've read the, the sort of stories that you're talking about and everything. I, I would say, you know, for Elon, I think for some people, this is like an emotional thing, right? And it's like, this problem is, is enormous, but I'm going to tackle it anyway. For Elon, it's a little bit different. I mean, he, he does come from this hyper-logical position. And so he looks at it and he says, look, this has never been done before. Why hasn't it been done before? Is this actually in the physics possible to do? And if he decides that it is, then that's when he charges after something. And so there's really like nothing emotional about it really at all, except that maybe... So you wouldn't describe him, would you describe him as a passionate guy? You know, I think anyone who works as hard as he is is obviously passionate on yeah. some level. But yeah, I think this comes from a different place. I mean, when you talk to him, you know, he does get emotional about some things, especially sort of oddly kind of man's fate as a, as a species yeah. is the thing he got the most emotional about. But but no, I mean, you know, he has that, that drive, but, but it comes from a very clinical sort of a place. Well, you do a beautiful job in your book of helping us understand how he developed as a person. Uh, in his youth, he would read a great deal of science fiction, and it struck me, a lot of the books that he would read, these science fiction books, got him envisioning a future that could be pretty magical and pretty beautiful. He reminds me of sort of the pragmatic, real-world Walt Disney, where Walt Disney would go and create rides, and the rides that Elon Musk creates are actual rides, <laughs> they're actual things that we can go to the moon and you know these kinds of things. Uh, how much did reading all this sci-fi and existing in this fantasy world in his head develop into the Elon Musk we see today? I think it played a huge role. You know, when you say that he read science fiction, people have to understand that, and I mean this literally, you know, I think by the time he was 14, he had read every science fiction book. He grew up in South Africa in Pretoria. And I think he had read every science fiction book in his local libraries and in the bookstores. He used to read one or two books a day. When he was about 12, he wrote a video game that takes place in space. He used to go to these Dungeons and Dragon tournaments and, and he did really well at them. He excelled. He, he was the guy who would sort of, you know, shepherd the story along for a long time. He read a ton of of Tolkien and he really he wanted to become an author when he was wow, a kid yeah. and, and and write write these grand tales of conquest and one of the things I try to argue in the book and I'm I'm pretty sure this is right is that a lot of kids read this stuff and and they get really into it but for him it took on this bigger calling. I mean, you know, when he would read these things, he didn't just see it as a story. He envisioned himself one day playing a role in these these grand struggles, or at least, you know, when he read about space and things like that, he dreamt of of participating in this almost as like a, a space warlord of sorts. And so, you know, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> fairly extreme. But, to uh, what he's become, I think, a space warlord. Yeah, and all this this stuff lives on today, you know. I mean, he's still like obsessed with video games. When he doesn't have much free time, but that is what he what he does. Or he likes to live in this this kind of fantasy world. 
that's really about the development of his imagination. The development of his ego, in part, might have come from having been bullied as a kid. I mean, there is an insurgent mentality that I'll get to in a second in his mission. Did part of that come from being an outsider, being seen as an outsider and being made fun of a little bit for his quirks? Did you see any sort of uh, I'm getting the world back kind of drive in him that may have fueled all these things that he's doing today? Yeah, I mean, you can play armchair psychologist. It's it's pretty easy to kind of draw this one out, but I think I think it's legit. I mean, so I grew up in South Africa as well, and for people who don't know, I mean, the you know he was born in 1971. The the society there was was incredibly masculine. It was all driven by sports at school when you were growing up, mm-hmm. and Elon had had he was not wired in this masculine way, and and he was not into sports at all. You know, he was the kid in the corner reading a science fiction book and either people left him alone because he didn't really have any close friends or they straight up bullied him in pretty severe fashion. I mean, it was already a fairly violent place and there's incidents where he got kicked down a flight of stairs and then pummeled and he he spent about a a week in the hospital after that. And then, you know, it's sort of sad in a lot of ways. I mean, I talked to people who were friendly with him and, and so they had a pretty positive look at it, but they said, look, nobody went to his house to play with him. Right. And and so he was a lonely, he was a lonely kid. And, and then his home life wasn't that much better. He, his parents got divorced and he ended up living with his dad and, you know, he speaks pretty ill of his father today and, and had a, had a very fractured relationship. And, and so it kind of did two things, right? One is that from a very young age, he wanted to leave South Africa and go chase kind of a better life. And then I think the other thing is that, yeah, he wants to prove to the world that he's special. And, and to your point, you know, I think he feels like he suffered a lot as a kid and that whatever happens in his businesses kind of pales in comparison to what he's already been through. Wow. So he can take the ups and downs of some hits because he's developed that emotional toughness. Is that what you mean? Yeah, he talks about that a lot and his ex-wives talk about that a lot. And so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that. So you know, he talks about look, I I particularly with his dad, which he doesn't he opens up a little bit, but we we never get the full story on what happened there, but he says, "Look, I, you know, I've already suffered through everything. Nobody can do anything that's worse to me." And when I talked to Justine Musk, his first wife, and Tallulah Riley, his second wife, they came back to this time and time again, just this this horrible childhood that made it possible for him to endure just about anything. Yeah, I don't want to play armchair psychologist, but we see a lot of tougher personalities, driven personalities, and there's a an alignment there with a sort of controlling tendency. But Elon, from the outside, doesn't seem like a controlling guy. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who always has to be right. I don't know how you, you learn as much as you learn if you can't admit when you've done some bad math, right? That's the sort of liability of the controlling personalities. They can't learn from their mistakes. They have no ability to self-reflect. He doesn't seem like that guy, and yet he gets as much done as that guy. Is he unique in the sense that he can self-reflect and he can learn from his mistakes, but he's also extremely driven and needs to be the guy in control? Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. I mean, I mean, he is again very clinical about this stuff, right? So uh, maybe we'll get into it a bit later. But you know, his first two companies, Zip2 and PayPal, are these internet companies, and he he basically gets 
gets he's the CEO of, of both and the largest shareholder and and despite all of that he gets thrown out of the CEO role twice there's <laughs> coups at the company to kick him out because he's, he's a horrible person to work for he he would go into meetings and just berate people in front of everybody else and and he was kind of like a adolescent in a grown-up world at that time and he he reflects on this and he decides look um, you know, I, and it's not as romantic as you might think. He says, I'm not going to get the most out of these people if I tear them down like this. And he starts to realize that. And so he, he tries to so behave. So it's a practical understanding. He, he doesn't have a change of heart when he's visited by the ghost of Christmas past. He actually just realizes I'm going to get more done if I start pretending to be nice. Is that, I mean, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it's, I always picture it kind of like Google giving free food at the office, right? I mean, you're like taking care of the employee, but the whole goal is to get Keep people to stay there at the office. <laughs> yeah, and and so, you know, he behaves a little bit better. But in fairness, I mean, look, man, this is... I encountered this in the the book time and again. Yes, there are meetings where Elon will propose something, and somebody can come back and say, "Look, that is that the, the physics do not back that up," and they make a really strong case, and he does change his mind. But you do that at your peril because if you if you're wrong, right, right. And, and Elon calls you out on it during the meeting, you might not have a job at the end of that meeting. So you really have to know your stuff. You have to come in w- with your evidence, and and it, it's to be totally honest. It's created a really tense atmosphere at both yeah. Tesla and SpaceX where people are a little afraid to speak their mind. Well, that's, uh, I mean, to some degree, that's Apple under Steve Jobs. That's the current uh, presidential administration under Donald Trump. That's, there's a kind of personality who operates that way, and there are benefits and there are serious liabilities. And Well, I also want to talk about some of the quirks in his the way he operates, and maybe there's something we can learn from this, although I think we have to take it with a grain of salt. You're speaking to hundreds of thousands of business leaders right now who want to learn something from Elon Musk. And one of the things is just an obsessive focus. In fact, you say on page 18, this is one of the most winsome paragraphs in your book, you talk about having a conversation with him, and he's talking about how he allocates his time and the tension that he has in wanting a girlfriend while also not having any time. He says, I think the time allocated to the business and the kids is going fine, Musk said. I would like to allocate more time to dating, though. I need to find a girlfriend. That's why I need to carve out just a little more time. I think maybe even another five to ten. How much time does a woman want a week? Maybe ten hours? That's kind of the minimum, right? I don't know. <laughs> that Everybody was, talks I think that like must that, be the right? point where yeah, that must be the point where you realize I've got a book. This is gonna be a good book. And it is a good book, Ashley. That's a quirky, funny thing. Was he sincere? He was sincere. I re- yeah. Well, first of all, when he said that, I like almost fell out of my chair just with kind of joy <laughs> that this guy says things like this. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, this, that's how his, his brain operates. You know, he's he's meticulous about his time. Obviously, this is a guy who's running two very large companies at the same time. He he splits his life between Silicon Valley and Los Angeles every week. Yeah. So you know, he's going back and forth, and. He would keep he he does have like a spreadsheet of how every minute of his day is spent, which is kind of funny because he's he's like late to everything and can't stop talking a lot of times wow. when he when he's going. But but he does have this this spreadsheet because I know um, you know I went back to him at one point and I was like how much and we were asking about the the interviews we had done all these dinners we'd done over the course of a few months and I mean he had it down to the minute exactly how much time we'd spent together and he runs these spreadsheets at the end 
end of the year to sort of figure out how he's allocating things. So he is, he's dead set so focused he's analyzing, on that. He's analyzing his own life from a logical perspective. I mean, he's... Yeah, at the end of the year, every year, he, he does run an analysis on all of this stuff and then and then try to decide how he's going to tweak things in the year going forward and and you know it might be sort of the weight of the time between tesla and spacex or in this case kind of you know how he's how he's living his personal life and every now and then he gets a little more romantic and caught up in it every time i notice that he has a new girlfriend or a a sort of budding romance he gets a bit freer with his time and he does seem to enjoy (laughs) until he realizes it's it's hurting the machine and then he shuts that down yeah well, I mean that's literally true. And when something goes wrong with the business, you know, then he you you hear it from all his ex girlfriends and ex wives. I mean, then you know he's back back on the business and and sort of giving them short shrift. Well, and then you know the obvious question is why? Why is there this obsession with what he's trying to build? And you say again on page seventeen of your book, he's less of a CEO chasing riches than a general marshalling troops to secure victory. Where Mark Zuckerberg wants to help you share baby photos, Musk wants to, well, save the human race from self-imposed or accidental annihilation. <laughs> These guys, he, there's a weight. To, I mean, he must sense a kind of weight to, if I don't get out of bed today, people are going to die. Or I mean, is that what's driving him? I mean, you know, I don't want to paint him as this mean guy who's unkind to his girlfriend. There, there's something else going on there. He believes something about the world. And his role in it. No, this is absolutely true. Look, I mean, people hear him talk about. Okay, it depends how closely you follow Elon, right? But but here's the here's the deal. His his life's mission. He's got all these companies, but his one singular mission in life is to create a colony on Mars, and not just with like five or six people. He wants thousands of people living on Mars, and it comes from this this very software engineer place where he wants a backup plan for the human species in case something goes wrong. And I think people hear him talk about this and some people think that's great. Some people think it's crazy. No matter what you think, you have to understand that this is his driving life goal and it is not a joke. And this comes from somewhere. I remember attending a lecture with Stephen Hawking and Stephen Hawking not jokingly said, you know, our only hope is to, is to colonize another planet because we are, we are certainly going to destroy ourselves. He's serious. Yeah, if you're wired like these two guys and it's this logical thing that we were talking about, look, man, if you wake up in the morning and you think the human species might get destroyed and you're super logical and nobody else is doing anything about this, then he sees himself as kind of humanity's best hope at the moment. And, you know, he would not... He would not get that emotional when we talked about his personal relationships, things like that. When we started talking about the human species, you know, he cried at least twice while we were doing our interviews on exactly this topic, like when he starts to think about humanity as a whole. And so I found it to be a very different kind of empathy than most people operate with. Is he Noah and SpaceX is his arc? A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's the, yeah, well, you can see that. I mean, it's a crazy deal that he's doing at SpaceX. You know, he, they, they send up all these rockets to carry satellites for communications companies and countries that, that want to set up TV or, or comms in space. And he, when he started this business, was not as rich as Jeff Bezos, who also has a, a rival space empire that's, that's, that's budding. So, you know, Jeff could, could just 
pay for this stuff out of his pocket, right? And Blue Origin, his company, has been pretty slow and, and secretive over the years. Elon has to had to make a for-profit business in order to set up this yeah, colony yeah. on Mars. So he's got to do all this dirty work he's along got, the way. I read today he wants to send somebody around the moon. Like, he, like if, if you're willing to pay for it, he'll send you around the moon. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Actually, that was a pretty awesome announcement. But uh, yeah, so, you know, he's got to make money on this stuff. I mean, he's doing much better now than when he started. Mm-hmm. But SpaceX is a workhorse in a very tough business. And, the, you know, it's not public. And that is by design, because it would be pretty hard for most investors to wrap their head around the end goal of this company, which is probably to burn through an incredible amount of cash. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Ashley Vance in just a moment. So, Don, you've worked with thousands of companies at this point, Mm. uh, clarifying their message, helping them with their marketing. What would you say is the number one mistake that companies make with their marketing? Well, it's a mistake that you probably wouldn't think you're making, but it's this. It's not necessarily your mistake, Uh but it is the number one reason nobody's marketing is actually working. It's because when we go to a design agency or we go to a graphic artist to create our marketing collateral, let's say it's a website. You know, we, we know we need a website. We've got to get this done. We hire a graphic artist. And we sit down with them to make this website. They build this beautiful website. We've all refreshed that website a thousand times because it looks so great. And it doesn't work. doesn't work any better than the previous website, even though it's prettier. The number one problem, the reason that that website is not working, is because the graphic artist who created it has a degree in design and has read everything about Photoshop, but has never read anything about writing good sales copy. And people are reading the words on that website, and they're not working. Or you wrote them yourself and gave them to the designer, and you don't have a degree in copywriting. You don't know how to write words that work and words that sell. You know, people buy things because they hear or read words that make them want to buy things. And it's amazing to me that we can put hundreds of hours into the design aspect of things, studying and learning how to use the technology and make something that looks really pretty, when that's not the reason somebody buys something. And to me, it's the most obvious thing in the world. But 99 out of 100 business people never think of it. They just think if my website's pretty, we'll sell things. It doesn't. And everybody listening to my voice knows that it is a, an enormous marketing money pit that we throw money into every year. So we've created some ways for entrepreneurs, business leaders to really know what is good copy and what is not good copy and even to be able to create good copy. And in April, we're running a copywriter certification. So anybody who wants to be a good copywriter can come to Nashville for two days and study copywriting with me and Ray Edwards. And Ray Edwards is one of the world's greatest copywriters. He was once paid, you won't believe this, JJ, $180,000 to write a single sales letter. <laughs> Can you believe that? I want to that job. He's regularly paid 50. <laughs> yeah. And more. He's been paid 100 and all that kind of stuff. But he was once his highest ever was yeah. $180,000 for a sales letter and that company made millions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> millions <laughs> off of that sales. So Ray is physically coming to town and for 2 days we're going to teach you to wireframe websites, create sales letters, write email nurturing campaigns, gather customer testimonials, all of it, so that when you go to the graphic artist, you can actually go to them with some words that will yeah. work. Yeah. If you want to be part of that, go to storybrand.com slash copywriter. That's storybrand.com slash copywriter. Register today, and I'll see you in Nashville.
let's get back to the basics of how he does business. I mean, we know he's wired peculiarly. We know he's got this insurgent mindset that he's trying to save the world. You know he sees himself on a mission. But he does practical things to get this much done. And we're talking about, you know, SpaceX, Tesla. Solar City. The Hyperloop program. Plus, we're talking about everything that the White House wants from him, everything that probably people he meets at Davos want from him. And he's able to manage a lot of that. I, I would guess he says no to a lot of things, like we all have to. But this is on page 231. You describe a little bit of him in action. He's an optimist by nature, and it can feel like he makes calculations for how long it will take to do something based on the idea that things will progress without flaw at every step, and that all the members of his team have a Muskian ability and work ethic. As Brogan joked, Musk might forecast how long a software project will take by timing the amount of seconds needed physically to write a line of code, and then extrapolating that out to match however many lines of code he expects the final piece of software to be. It's an imperfect analogy, but one that does not seem that far off from Musk's worldview. Quote, everything he does is fast, Brogan said. He pees fast. It's like a fire hose, three seconds and out. He's authentically <laughs> in a hurry. <laughs> great, by the way, great writing. You're, you're a heck of a writer. It's such a fun read. Uh, thanks. He thinks like a calculator. He expects you to be like a calculator. He, and he operates like a calculator. Is speed part of his secret sauce? Yeah, he, he kind of he denies some of this. Uh, but, you know, I found it to be totally true time yeah. and time again. Did you find he, I mean, were you nervous sitting and interviewing with him, wondering if you were interviewing the most efficient possible way because this guy's going to criticize you if you just try to have a conversation here? I was nervous in that sense. I was never nervous, you know, in that you're interviewing Elon or a billionaire or something like that. Because to be totally honest, he puts you at ease because he, he does not walk in like some crazy alpha male sort of I'm a celebrity kind of guy. He's he's actually pretty down to earth. But yeah, I always felt like I felt like the second I started asking dumb questions or or something was wasting his time, and I needed a lot of his time. So there was a lot of pressure that that he was going to shut everything down and and stop doing the interviews because there, there's no small talk. One of the things I write about in the book is you know I was sitting there waiting for him for a dinner one time. I had my my gin and tonic. He's always late, and I'm sitting there at the table. And this happened kind of time and again. This type of thing where he sits down and I do what anybody else would do. I say, you know, how's it going? <laughs> and most people kind of respond with a little chit-chat. And the first thing out of his mouth was, you know, I'm afraid that Larry Page is creating an artificial intelligence that will destroy mankind. That was, <laughs> that was like his response to how are you so doing it's not it. Going so well. <laughs> no, well, I mean, but that's, that's like the point where you dash for the tape recorder, you shove it on, and then, and then so from that moment <laughs> on, there is no small talk. Then it's three hours of uh. just constantly probing and, and looking for stuff that matters to that him. That sounds like heaven. <laughs> if you could be that powerful and have that much money where we just don't have to talk about the weather. We can just get right <laughs> to the point. Let me ask you this. Who works for him? I mean, you know, who? what kind of system has he created to leverage this ability and multiply his you know, efficiencies? Can you speak into that a little bit? Because I think we might all learn from that. This is one of the biggest things I tried to get through in the book, and hopefully it comes through because it does not come through in the popular press where yeah. everybody obsesses over the idea of Elon and his personality trait quirks and things like that. The reason his companies are successful is because, yes, he hires good people, so that goes back to him, but they are good people. Like You cannot find 
another company like SpaceX, where you have five to 7,000 young, incredibly intelligent, driven people, and they they do all buy into this mission, which is they, these are people that... So that insurgent mentality, that save the world mentality is motivating these people. These guys, look, and again, for some people, Mars is this abstract concept. They don't care, right? These people, these thousands of people want to get to Mars as badly as Elon does. If not that, they want to explore space. They want to be sending up rockets. I mean, aerospace was a had become a boring industry that had not changed in decades. So yeah. if you're a 25-year-old and you're, you are into aerospace, you, you know, and you, your prospect is to go get a job at Boeing and sort of bide your time and do a couple interesting things, or you can go to SpaceX and you can be on this small team that's trying to become the first privatized rocket company that's trying to do a loop around the moon that's trying to get to mars i mean it is literally not, you know, not long ago shot off a rocket and landed it yeah exactly so like every day they're kind of doing something new right where yeah. space had not changed in a long time and they're doing and, it more efficiently than the i mean no offense to nasa it's such an amazing program but they're probably doing it more efficiently than nasa you think Oh, they're, they're, they're doing it much more efficiently. I mean, NASA doesn't even fly the space shuttle anymore, and so SpaceX's biggest competition is a, a joint venture between Boeing and Lockheed Martin. And, you know, they talk about, so their rockets cost, it's, it's a company called United Launch Alliance. You know, they charge about $300 million a launch. SpaceX charges $60 million. The, the United Launch Alliance guys, they talk about, they need 12,000 suppliers. They talk about this with pride because it creates a lot of jobs yeah. all around the country, but they need 12,000 suppliers to make their rockets. SpaceX makes 90% of its rockets at its factory in Los Angeles. Mm. And, and so it is, it is a totally different approach. Yeah, there's a common theme here with this guy that in the use of his time and the use of his social energy, he's able to see what is profitable. He's able to see what is waste and what is not waste. And my guess is that's a singular focus because he has this singular focus, he knows everything that's not in that focus. But this sounds like it translates from economics to engineering and on and on. Even we just talked about the fact that you'd be in the room and you sensed when you said something that wasn't profitable for an interview because he's got a hyper radar to that. Am I, am I accurate in that? Well, that's been the, the key to SpaceX. For sure, is that that he basically broke the rocket down. He said, start with a clean sheet of paper. Do not assume that anyone knows what they're talking about or that mm. the reason they picked to do things the way they did them was correct. You know, there's a lot of baggage behind all this stuff. So let's start from a clean sheet of paper. There's a ton of examples in the book, you know, like in space for a really long time, uh, the conditions were really hard and electronics used to be bad. And so they have things like space grade radios that cost $200,000 each. And he, he said, you know, I think probably computers and electronics have improved in the last 50 years. Maybe yeah. we don't need yeah. a space grade radio. Maybe we could put two regular radios on there. And so, so SpaceX builds its own radios, you know, and they cost about $5,000 each. Wow. And, yeah. and, you know, they shove a couple on them. And then so there was a, a real give and take where NASA had been doing things the same way for a long time. And Elon had to prove a lot of this stuff. So SpaceX would fly 
they would fly up extra electronics on the rockets just to prove to NASA that they worked. And then, you know, slowly but surely they could get rid of the old stuff and bring in all the new stuff. But it was that it was that blank slate of paper and sort of question everything that's been done before that let them get the price down. Well, what does the future look like? I mean, we're coming to the end of our interview. What do you think, because of Elon Musk, we're going to be able to enjoy in the future? Can you just paint some pictures of some things that he's working on and how it will affect us? Yeah, I mean, look, he's still a work in progress, right? All this stuff could go go up in flames tomorrow. I mean, Tesla <laughs> burns through a, a ton of money, and, and SpaceX is always a couple you know, uh, explosions away from disaster. But here's here's like the optimistic scenario. I mean, if you think about the United States, especially from 2008 on, you know, the automotive industry, we had lost a lot of global competitiveness. And there is every chance that we will wake up in five years and have electric cars all over this country. We'll have charging stations, not just Tesla's, but but other companies' charging stations all over the country. We'll have autonomous driving at a really high level. And the United States, you know, and then inside of the car, you've got this incredibly modernized entertainment system um, that brings all kinds of new features to the car. I mean, he, he has rethought the car and there's every chance that the United States, just like we did in phones where we were behind Japan and Europe, will become the leader in automotive technology mm-hmm. and, and, and have this new infrastructure right behind all this. In addition to all those cars, then you've got solar city solar panels, and if everything goes right, you know they're building these, these really cool battery systems that will let you store all right, the extra. Right, look at this. My wife and I are building a house. It's like for, for three or six thousand dollars, something like that. Now you can install a battery in your house that saves energy during the cheap hours and exactly during the expensive hours, and saves you a ton of money. That's that's Elon Musk, and Elon has a lot of critics. Okay, but look. You know, and and his companies may blow up along the way, but I have no doubt that whether it's Tesla or someone else, we're going to have electric cars, we're going to have these battery systems, we're going to have these solar systems, because he's shown that people are into this, and it's interesting, and you can make it work. In terms of the rockets, the aerospace industry, most people do not pay attention to this stuff, but we are at an incredible moment in time where, because of SpaceX proving that a private company can do this. It has put tons of pressure on the incumbent players, countries, Russia, Europe, the United States, to lower their costs, one, to advance their technology. And then there are, I know of dozens of rocket companies and dozens of satellite companies that have now formed because Elon set this model. And we are going to go from flying to space on average about once a month to very shortly twice a month, once a week, and then once every day. And the, the kinds of satellites that are going up are incredible. And mm. this, is like, this is a whole new world that's opening up. And it's taken a long time to get here, but people should be excited because cause it's incredible. And, and again, even if SpaceX goes away, they're almost like, SpaceX is kind of the old guard of this new movement now. <laughs> it's weird yeah, for them to be like yeah. the, the old dog. In only seven years or so, that, that's what that's happened. Yeah, so there's people trying to undercut SpaceX, trying to do things differently than them, and you know this is incredible, man. Especially if you're at all a patriot, and I, I don't, I, my mom's Australian, I was born in South Africa, I don't have like a deep nationalistic sort of thing, but it is, it's inspirational that a guy from South Africa can come to this country with a hundred dollars in his pocket and single-handedly revitalize America's aerospace industry where we'd gone from the leader 
to the bottom of the pack and, and build all this stuff in Los Angeles at a time when they say you can't make things in America. It's, I mean, I don't know. I just don't see how you can look at that and not be inspired on some level. Well, I certainly am. I'm inspired by him. I'm inspired by uh, your book and, the, and the, the careful way that you wrote it. It's, it's a wonderfully written book. The book is called Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. The author, who I'm honored to have as a guest today, Ashley Vance. Ashley, thank you so, so much. Uh, I was inspired by the book, and I, as just as a business guy, I learned a lot from the book. Good stuff. Ashley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. With this episode, along with all the episodes from 2017, we've developed worksheets that you can go through and answer some questions and fill out some blanks in order to help you kind of process what happened during the interview, but also then apply it to your life and your business. To get the worksheet for this episode, go to buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. That's buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. Well, absolutely fascinating. JJ, do you want to go to Mars? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> I do not, but I want to learn to pee faster. So <laughs> that's a waste of time. Like a horse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Apparently like a horse. Fascinating guy. So grateful for Ashley. I mean, what a he's just a great writer. It was a fun, fun vacation read. And if you're looking for an interesting read, I'm a big biography guy. I read a lot of biographies, and this was definitely a very, very good one. All right. On our next episode, we have Daniel Tardy. Daniel is Senior Vice President of Entree Leadership over at Ramsey Solutions. They are good friends of ours. The people at Entree Leadership have great products, do great stuff. Daniel's a friend, and he comes and he shares with us how to have really, really good meetings. We kind of we, we, yeah. might, need to, we might need to learn from this. It's story. We have effective meetings, though. Yeah, we're we pretty. Do. I think we're pretty good. Yep. But he's like dead serious. He's got like all these tips and tricks on having really great meetings, and yeah. you know, meetings can make or lose you hundreds of thousands of dollars. So yeah. here's a little bit of my interview with Daniel Tardy. When somebody can just be fully vulnerable and go, this is really what I think about this, that voice in our head gets louder that says, hey, don't really tell them what you think, the more people there are in the room. If there's two or three or four people, you can kind of talk your way through it and you can trust that we can have a conversation about this if I didn't exactly say it the right way. But the bigger that audience gets, the more that we go back to that little third grade or fourth grade kid that for the first time said something in front of the whole class and everybody laughed. And that's the fear. And so the more people we add, it just kind of the nature of a bigger group is we're just a little bit more careful and political about our statements. And we don't want that. That's not how the magic happens, right? That's not how things are created. That's not how we drive ideas forward. All right, if you want to hear the full interview, make sure you tune in again next week. In fact, if you haven't subscribed to the Building a Story Brand podcast, do so now. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell, and you can listen to all of Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>